Bless God. Let's read chapter 6, just verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Father, we thank you so very, very, very much. Uh, Even with the exhortation that we used to be dead in sin. We were under sin, but now we are alive in Christ. And that's because we are under grace, Father. And we thank you, Father, for this grace that never gives up on us, this grace that's always empowering, this grace of yours, it's grace upon grace, it never ends, wave upon wave, Father. We thank you for it, Father God, we find our sustenance in your grace, Father, uh, our existence in your grace, God. We, we can rejoice even when things outside are horrible because of your grace. So God, we ask you to breathe upon the text as we preach and open up our eyes to see nuances of grace we've never seen before. Maybe for some to understand for the first time here today what it means to be under grace and not under law anymore, Father God. Let us be empowered by truth, Father God, as the truth and the truth alone can set a Christian free, Father. So we thank you, Father, in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Sin will have no dominion over you because you are under grace. We'll be concluding our series on sin either this week or next month. I don't know. I'll let you know. You come and find out. But uh, as we've been speaking about it, I'm going to continue to say it. I wanted to get deep within us as a reminder of why we're doing this. Is because of just so many people that I know, uh, public ministries that have fallen into sin. They have, uh, have been tripped up by sin, the empower of sin, the indwelling power of sin. And so as a, as a pastor, I wanted to make sure that as a congregation, we look into this and that we're not tripped up, that we don't become a statistic. I don't become a statistic. You don't become a statistic. You're not a husband that becomes a statistic or a wife that becomes a statistic or a Christian that all of a sudden is not in church anymore and becomes a statistic because sin has taken them out. We're Christians. We don't live under the dominion of sin anymore. We live under the power of grace. And we've been speaking about this, and one of the things that Paul had to address in 1 Corinthians, that therefore if anyone thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall, because we've got to be careful. We're never outside of the reach of sin. We've got to be careful that pride doesn't go before the fall, and to think, well, I've arrived somewhere in my life of sanctification, and I can do it. I can mingle with the world, and that's what Paul was saying. You're mingling with the world. You're eating things sacrificed to idols. Uh, Be careful going to these temples. You used to go there. Don't go there no more. Don't think you're beyond the going backwards. So he gives the admonishment, if anyone thinks he stands, take heed. Watch yourself. Be careful. Lest you fall back into the same sins God saved you from. And that's what he meant. Then we spoke about... But exhort one another day after day, as long as it is called today, that no one may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We don't realize that this sin has the power to deceive or self-deception. And one of the uh, restraints against that is consistent fellowship. Exhort one another while it's today. Take life serious is what the writer of Hebrews is doing. Be careful. Encourage one another. Exhort one another. Fellowship one another. Otherwise, the deceitfulness of sin will come in slowly but surely, isolate you, 
take you, think he can do it, and move you away from the body of Christ, move you away from the truth, move you away from the power of the gospel, until we fall into the deceitfulness of sin. We spoke about what Peter said, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And we see Peter uh, personifying sin as a soldier, ready to do battle, these inner passions that are ready to rip into us at any time. We have to be careful against that. And of course, we spoke about the sin that easily entangles us, and uh, which weighs us down or hinders us. And we saw about those things that aren't necessarily sin, but if we're not careful, they become obsessive obsessions and the distractions to, to God and to holiness and to growing in the Christian faith. And they steal time away, quality time, away from serving the Lord and loving the Lord. And before you know it, a hindrance turns into a weakness. A weakness turns into a curiosity. Curiosity turns into temptation. And before you know it, Square one. We spoke about dead to sin last week, and even though it doesn't feel like sin is dead in us, I could tell you this. And as we spoke about it last week, and we'll speak a little more about tonight, uh, the closer you are to God, the more we feel like sin is dead. The closer I'm walking with sin, I don't feel like I'm alive to God. The reason we're dead to sin is because now we're alive to God. There's a new principle we're going to speak about tonight that's alive in us. We're alive to God. And that's why Paul can say you're dead to sin because there's something operating in your life that's greater than sin's dominion. It's the grace of God. And that's where we are tonight. We are under grace. We're not under law. It's interesting that when it comes to overcoming sin, as we see here in this book, Specifically in this chapter, Paul, before Paul admonishes believers to live a holy life, uh, first he always explains, and he does this in all his epistles, he explains what Christ has done for them. First he explains what Christ has done and what you are in Christ now. Then what is the Christian's response to this grace of God in Christ? It's not just get your act together, stop sinning, you can do it, rah, 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 some kind of holy huddle. And then we're all going to go out and fall flat on our face because the flesh profits nothing. Maybe you'll get a week out of it, but that's it. He admonishes them, he first encourages them what Christ has done, then encourages them to live the Christian life out. Uh, This is called the indicative. This is what God has done. The imperative, the command, is how we respond to what God has done. The law got you to respond to what what God would do to you if you broke the law. If you break the law, this is what happens. That's how God, that's how the law tried to get people to live a holy life. If you break the law, so and so happens. But for the Christian today, we live the Christian life out not under threat, but under promise and under grace. Living a life free from sin is more probable than people think. It could take a young Christian to realize, how in the world could I ever do this? I remember when I've shared this story before, when I was a martial artist, I was a young martial artist, and I was so enthusiastic, and I was in. Man, I was in. I was the king of the white belts. Man, I was the best. 
man, I could do it all. I was bigger than everybody, a little faster than everybody, a little more athletic. Man, I thought I was going places. And then I was invited to watch a black belt test, and I remember what my jaw dropped up, and I said, how in the world are these guys standing? I was like, I am outside of my comfort zone. They're way ahead of me. I thought I was just a big fish in a little pond. I don't realize I couldn't hold a candle to these men. And the truth of the matter is I couldn't. If I would have got up, they would have beat me down silly. And they did later on. But the point I'm saying now, as a young believer, I watched what eventually I wanted to become, not thinking I could ever become it. Because I wasn't ready for it yet. Same thing with grace. You come into the Christian life and you hear the pastor preach. You you read what Paul says. You read about what Jesus says. You you hear sermons and and all of a sudden you're saying, you know what's in you. But you can never perceive ever living that kind of life. Sin's got you. You know, it it feels like the world is holding on to you. You know you're saved. You you know, you've given your life to Christ. You know it. But it doesn't seem anything's changing yet. You agree with the sermons. You agree with the word of God. It it bears witness to your soul that that's the truth. I know that Jesus died for me and all my passions have been crucified with Christ. And I'm dead to sin. I know it. Man, but I'm just not living it yet. I'm not going to ask you to raise hands. I know that's the truth. I was there. I remember the first three years of my salvation. I was a mess. A mess. But I never felt condemned ever felt condemned. I didn't think I would ever be able to walk in the spirit. I didn't think anything was ever going to change in my life. All the besetting sins, all the weaknesses, all the failures about myself that I knew, how are they ever going to change? But they do. I want to encourage you. By God's grace, they do. So I say living free from sin is more probable and possible Then you think, maybe you haven't experienced it yet. But before a believer can really start living free from all the little begetting sins that tear us down, these little foxes that spoil the the vine, we must first begin to grasp. And that's what Paul's doing here in the indictive. He's saying, grasp what Christ has done for you. Grasp it. You, You might not live it out yet, but just know that this is the truth. Though I was dead in sin and trespasses, I am now alive in Christ. I can't experience. I can't explain it. I haven't experienced it fully, but I know this is the truth. That's what Paul is saying. You have to know the truth first. This is what sets us free. This is how God says, "I know you can do it." If God was a coach, he'd be saying, "This. I know you can do it. Go do it, because Christ has already done it for you." See, as karate, I couldn't tell you to do that. I have to prepare you to do the best you can, then you got to go out. But spiritually, no. Spiritually, it's our job to remind you what Christ has already purchased for you. And by faith, we get there. It must, we must begin to grasp what God has done. These big theological truths... But in conjunction with living it out by faith on a daily basis. It's no price. There's a learning process. I mean, you can rest assured there's trial and there's error to all this. But it's of must, uh, the utmost importance that we do learn it. Christian character is developed at a Christian understanding. 
Christian character is not like uh, when we were children and we go to bed and our tooth come out and you put it on there. We used to get a quarter. Woo, big quarter, you know? And we would think Christian character is that way. You know, you go to church and you wake up Monday and you're more like Christ. And it doesn't happen. Church is supposed to teach us Christian understanding. Christian understanding is grasped by faith, even with many tears, many failings, but we still grasp the understanding, we still reach out with it by faith, and our life begins to change. No true, sustained, joyful advancement can be maintained in our life without it. And I'll say it again. No true, sustained, joyful advancement of Christian character can be maintained in this life without true Christian understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ on a daily, weekly, annual, rest of our life basis. It won't work. And we're looking at tonight what it means to be under grace. Under, we can say, that which defines you. Under law, and I'll speak about what it means to be under the law, and I'll speak about what it means to be under grace, but it's what defines you. It what owns you. The law and sin before we came to Christ owned us. That's what it means to be redeemed, purchased back. What defines us now is grace. That's what defines us. Because what God says about us is what defines us. And when God says we're dead to sin, we're dead to sin. When God says sin won't have dominion over you, it means sin won't dominate our life anymore. It doesn't characterize our life. We can fall into it, but it doesn't characterize. We're not slaves to it. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Paul has been teaching that the power of sin in these 14 verses, I read them last week, I only read verse 14 today, has been broken. It's not the tyrant it used to be. For many of us coming out of addictive personalities and backgrounds with drugs and alcohol, and as many of us here, I'm I'm included. You know, there was a time that, whether it's drugs or alcohol or other things, they, they owned us. They owned us. They demanded and we had to go. We might have short seasons where we could hold on and, and not touch it. But if we weren't doing something proactive to it, sooner or later, the voice cried out and we had to succumb to the temptation to pick up the drink, the drug, or whatever it might have been. And then when something happens to a lot of us, we get sober, we get straight. We put down the addiction and, and sooner or later, a gift is given and the obsession is lifted. And the thoughts come, but the obsession is not there anymore. It's beautiful. That's how it is for the Christian. For the young Christian that thinks it's an obsession, one day the obsession is not there. Christ breaks the obsession. And he gives other things, and I'm going to speak about that, but I try to use an analogy to understand that sin's power is broken. The addiction to sin, and that means the, the addiction to live life our way, not under the loving rule of God, that's sin, to live life eating off the knowledge of the tree of e- the, the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, to continue to live that way 
under our own power, under our own way, to be a law unto ourselves is broken now. We live for the Lord. The addiction to sin is broken. We were once dead to God. We were once dead to God. In our hearts, and we were alive to sin. We love to sin rather than to love God. The Bible actually calls us rebels. The fifth chapter says we're, we were enemies of God. At the right time, when you were still an enemy, a hater of God. Did you ever see yourself as a hater of God? You might have not felt that way, but your actions proved we were. But at that time, at the right time, Christ died for us. The righteous for the unrighteous. But now we're dead to sin. And we're alive to God. You know what that means? God really means something to us now. You a Christian? Christian man, Christian woman, Christian couple? God means something to us now. We want to please God. That's part of what it means to be under grace. Tonight Paul spells out another dynamic. Under grace. This is what it means to be raised. How can we, as he said in verse 4, who died to sin, verse 1, still live in it? How can we? Well, you're under grace now. That's how. He says this in verse 4. We spoke about it last week. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Walk in the newness of life. That's under grace. He says in verse 6, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be slaved, enslaved to sin. Because we're under grace. For the one who has died has been set free because we're under grace. Verse 12, let no sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make it obey its passions because we're under grace. But what does that mean to you and me? If a non-believer or a Jew were to say, but a, a sincere non-believer, a sincere searcher, but what does it mean to be under grace? What does that mean? How do you explain that to them? Where do you begin? Most likely, most of us will get half of the equation right. It means we're not saved by works, we're saved by? Grace. We're forgiven free and full by? Grace. I mean, that would be, and that's part of the answer. You're going to find out tonight that's not the whole answer. There's a lot more to this than just being forgiven. This is all because we're under grace. This is God's new pro program, his new covenant that was promised in the Old Testament, but revealed in Jesus. It's revealed in the death of Jesus. The death of Jesus is the beginning of the God's economy of grace. Grace is found in the actual crucifixion of Christ. It had grace written all over it. Because before you can rise with Christ, you have to die with him. You have to die. It's the beginning of grace. Grace was not the beginning. It didn't start at Pentecost. It didn't start when, when Christ rose from the dead. 
It started in Gethsemane when he was betrayed. It was the beginning of grace. And our faith in Christ qualifies us for this grace because in it, in our faith in Christ, our old man, as verse seven, verse 6 says, has died to sin. The old man of sin has died. This is what it means to be under grace. Under law, to be under the law was an excessive burden. Man was created to rest ashore in the garden under law. He was created uh, to follow law. Man was never meant to be autonomous. He was never meant to be a law unto him ever. But as soon as they reached out, they became a, what they said. They said, God will take over now. We'll decide what's good and we'll decide what's evil. We'll determine the outcome of our own life. You did your job. You created us. Now go away. Go away. We'll take over now. Man was never created to be autonomous. Listen, God was the kind of creator, uh, the kind creator who set down law to, how can I say it, as a way to keep man safe and to enjoy. Listen to this. God set down law to keep man safe, but to enjoy the greatest aspect of a relationship with God. It's called duty and delight. Duty to obey and our delight to do it. Both of these were found in a harmonious relationship in Christ. Jesus says, God always hears me because I always live to do his will. It's all Christ wanted. For Jesus' duty to the Father was the greatest delight. Adam failed. Israel failed. Jesus Christ is the true Israel. He's the second Adam. He didn't fail. He came to do the will of the Father. When he was hungry in John chapter 4, they said, Lord, you must eat. He said, but I can't. My sustenance is to do the will of the Father and to accomplish it. That's all I'm about in this world. Is to please God. That's it. It's a delight. Law keeping to Christ was a delight. So much so that he volunteered to come. Though he was created, though he existed in the image of God, he did not equate equality with God, something to be grasped, but he emptied himself in the incarnation. That was the beginning of of his delight and duty. That was the beginning of saying, I'll do it. It's my delight to come to this world of sinful humanity and live the life they're supposed to live and then die the life, die the death they're supposed to die. It's his delight. From the incarnation to the cross, everything Christ did was pleasing to the Father. It was his delight. It was a duty and it was a delight. It was man's greatest good. Nothing is more sweeter to the soul of a man than honoring God from the heart. 
please understand this. This all has to do with sin and temptation. Because this is what under grace means. Under grace, God has restored duty and delight. If you think you're going to try to live a Christian life and not enjoy God, you're going to fail miserable and find out you were never saved. It does not work. At all. It's not about feelings. God has something greater and more rewarding than fleeting feelings. When a person experiences the harmonious rapture of the soul, of all their affections, all their understanding, and the full compliance of their will, it pleases God. There is nothing greater than to please God. Nothing. There is nothing. Pleasing God is the greatest reward of soul. There is no greater fulfillment. There's no greater happiness. There's no greater joy than when you know in your heart of hearts you're obeying God from the heart with no one watching. No one's telling you what to do. You're self-motivated by the gospel message of what Christ has done for you to get up and live for the Lord. There's nothing sweeter. You cannot hear a better message anywhere. Someone can say it better, more eloquent, more informed, more educated. But there is no greater message on this earth than it is to obey God from the heart. There is no better message. There is none. To be in compliance with the Father's will. This is living. This is really living. This is joy. And Jesus knew this joy. Jesus knew this living. Jesus knew this duty and delight. That's why Jesus says, I want my joy in John 15 to be in you. I want to share my joy with you. This joy of compliance with the Father, I want you to have it. Go run. Go live life like men and women were supposed to. They were created to. Enjoy life. This is living. And this is what Jesus paid for at Calvary. For a new dispensation of a new covenant. To be under grace. Grace reproduces this rapture of soul. Of both duty and delight. Of obeying God from the heart. Paul says that the law was good. It was perfect. It was spiritual. It perfectly sets out the rules living before God in his world they came by way of supernatural revelation to Moses on Mount Sinai at first glance the law seemed reasonable and it seemed doable and all the people cried out in in Exodus 20 we'll do it just don't talk anymore your voice is killing me God it's killing me Just we'll do it at first glance it looked doable it looked reasonable But as Old Testament history started to reveal, in which New Testament history confirms, law keeping as a means of pleasing God was impossible. Impossible. Why is that? Because the law not only reveals God's will for us, which is perfect, good, and spiritual, but also reveals sin at work 
within us. When man truly takes up a religious law, keeping as a way to please God, something is awakened within him. Something that was always there, but conscience hadn't really known it yet. Sin in its power. Listen to Paul's testimony in chapter 7, verses 8 and 9. He says this, But sin, sizing an opportunity through the commandment, that's the law, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. He goes on to say in verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment, he says, that promised life proved to be death to me. This was the whole crux of the matter. That which is spiritual, the law, that which is good, which is the law, that which is perfect, which is the law, only has the power to awaken sin. That's that rebellious side of human nature. Paul is a young Jewish boy with eyes wide open, desiring to honor God with good intentions at his bar mitzvah. He became a son of what? Bar mitzvah means son of the law. The commandment that promised life. I'm 13. I'm, I'm going to honor God. I'm, I'm going to become a man. I'm going to have responsibilities in the house. I'm, I'm going to obey God. I'm going to honor God. I'm going to follow the commandments with all my heart. Is what he said. Soon found out there was another side to him. He didn't know when he thought he was alive. But when the commandment came, he died. Because he found out there was something in him he wasn't aware of. As much as he wanted to obey the law, he could not do it without any real consistency from the heart. Outward duties like going to temple, Sabbath keeping, festivals, dietary laws about certain foods were in his reach. But when it came to the taming of the giant of a jealous spirit, he was powerless. He could not overcome inner temptation. The law will never help you with inner temptation. If a law said, make sure you pray three times a day, you can do it. If a law said, make sure you wash your hands before you eat every meal, you can If the law said you need to save grace before every meal, you can. If the law said make sure you worship every Sunday at 8 o'clock, you can. If the law said you have to worship me in the morning and the evening prayers, you can. If the law said once a month you have to come to the temple and bring an offering, you can. But when the law says do not covet, you cannot do it. It reveals something in us. And that's when he said, I died. I died. I died. It promised life. But I only find death. I'm doing all the external stuff. Matter of fact, he says, according to the external stuff in in Philippians, I was perfect. Without blemish. I kept the external law perfectly. I showed up every day. But on the inside... I was an animal. 
of a sudden the law, which promised life, seemed to turn against himself. And his only real defense was suppressing the giant within him. The only real defense, he though external religious exercise and devotions, he became a self-righteous Pharisee to the point of persecuting the Christian church. This is what the Lord did. Jesus warned of that. I tell you, verily, verily, an hour is coming when people will kill you and think they're doing a what? A service to God. Murder in the name of God. That's how religious, that's what the Lord does. We see it today. They'll kill in the name of God because the law says it. Because they're not under grace, they're under law. The law tells but produces nothing. The law says run but doesn't give you legs. The law says reach out, doesn't give you arms. The law says fly but gives you no wings. But when Christ comes, he gives you, he bids you fly and he gives you wings. He says fly, here's the wings. Run, here's the legs. See, here's the eyes. Touch, here's the hands. Love, here's the love. The law of Moses, it turns out, has the power to tell us what to do perfectly. But never able to empower us to do it. Always bringing us to the the pinnacle of honoring God. Only to fall short again and again and again. No duty I should say it's all duty, but no delight. That's the law. Only failure and pain. The law makes nothing perfect in the eyes of God. It's a painful merry-go-round, always promising, but never fulfilling. And at the end, only sure damnation and judgment. The problem is not the law, but indwelling sin. Listen to what Paul says. In chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, talking about the law. For God has done what the law, weakened by our flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for our sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He did this for a reason. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, because we're not under the floor anymore, we're under grace, and with grace comes the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. It's into this dark world that grace came. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth and freedom and liberty and power came through Jesus Christ. Grace upon grace, wave upon wave of God's grace. No matter how much we can fail, we can't outrun the mercy of God. We can't outrun the patience of God. We cannot outrun the love of God. We cannot outrun the forgiveness of God. Grace upon grace upon grace. Grace began first in the prophets that promised of a time of unprecedented mercy from God. Listen to the promises. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgression from us. 
He says this also to prophets. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. David says, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. He goes on to say, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. The prophet Micah says, he will again have compassion on us when he will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. Jeremiah says this, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. For I will forgive them of their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. No more, no more. And why does God promise such mercy? Why does God promise such grace? Because he was despised and rejected by men. Surely he borne our griefs. Surely he carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And even though all of us are sheep have gone astray, the Lord was pleased to lay upon him the iniquity of us all. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers, Jesus Christ did not open his mouth. Out of the anguish of Christ's soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, that the righteous one, my servant Christ, make many to be accounted righteous, as they shall bear their iniquities and penalties. For the first time in Paul's whole religious life, he experienced the paid in full mercy of God. This religious Pharisee devoted to the law, the promise that the law was going to give life, but only awakened sin, only brought him to face death. He read the Old Testament and all he could read was law, 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 law. It got heavier and heavier until he was born again. And now all he could see is Christ, 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 Christ. That was it. He's reading the same Old Testament he read from his childhood, memorized it, but he couldn't see the mercy until he experienced it in Christ. This is under grace. It was promised. It wasn't paid for yet. That's the difference between promise and fulfillment. The Old Testament is the gospel promised. The New Testament in Christ is the gospel fulfilled. Think about Paul. All of a sudden, experience grace and mercy for the first time. And not just Paul, but the Lord's grace was poured out on all humanity, all who believe in Christ, the Lamb of God. And with this grace comes the law now written on our hearts. Duty and delight converging within like it was in Jesus. It's these new affections. We want to serve God. 1 John 5 says that the commandments of God are not burdensome. They're not burdensome anymore. He's given me feet. I can run with the law. He's given me hands. I can handle the law. He's given me love. I can love the law. Under grace. Not under law. For the first time we feel alive on the inside. Everything the law promised but could not fulfill, weakened as it was by sinful flesh. 
Paul found in just turning to Jesus on that day. He turned to Jesus. There was no commandments in his hand. Only thing he saw in his hand were pierced hands, pierced feet. That's all he saw. And he saw the love and mercy of God. That was it. That's what changed him. By faith. It changed him. Under the law was to be bound to external restraints with no help. Under grace is to be free to love God from the heart. We can love God from the heart. I can be the weakest of Christians, but I can love God now. I can experience the love of God now. It's not depending on how good my performance is under the law. I can be sloppy, I can be weak, and I can be young. But by God's grace, I can experience the forgiveness, the mercy, and the grace of God. This is what it means to be under grace. Grace is not just forgiveness. Grace is a principle We speak about gravity as a law. It's a principle. We know that which goes up must come down. Paul in chapter 8 says this principle. This under grace he says it another way. He says it's a new law. It's called the law of the spirit of life. We have these new impulses for God. We have love and joy, humility, self-control, gentleness, peace, patience, faithfulness. These are new positive spiritual dynamics that were never there before. And all of a sudden they're invading our soul. And they're not ours by nature. They're a gift of God's grace. That come through Christ because they were in him first. And not just that. For the first time, Paul just didn't feel 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 empowered. He didn't just feel love. He didn't just feel gentleness and patience and goodness. For the first time, his soul had the sensation of no condemnation. For the first time, he knows what it is to be guiltless and shameless. He's, but I killed in your name. I, I killed Christians, Lord. Who is it? Who is it I'm persecuting? It is me, Paul, Jesus, whom you are persecuting. You mean the young man, Stephen, whose face shone like an angel, really was one of yours, and I killed him. Think about his soul. All of a sudden, guilt is gone. Shame is gone. He's feeling the forgiveness of mercy of God. This is what it means to be under grace. It gets better. And not just forgiveness. And not just the gifts and the fruits of the Spirit. But the Spirit of sonship by which we cry, Abba Father. Hallelujah. Abba Father. Abba. Overwhelmed by the compassion and mercy and kindness of a loving Father. This is what it means to be under grace. Why would anybody want to try to keep one stinking law when you can have all the grace of God in Christ? Why? One application. 
Just a question. Why do we allow sin to torment us? Why? There are seasons in my life, I'm a Christian a long time, but I've seen seasons, even as a Christian, I love the Lord. You let your God down for a moment. Just for a moment. A little of this no more, and a little of that no more. Oh, I'm preparing sermons, but you know, I'm not going to the park and praying like I used to. It was a daily ritual. I'm too busy. Got to prepare the sermon. Got to study. Makes one week. Understand something. I say all what I said to say this, and I said it last week. Enjoy God now. You're under grace. Don't take Him for granted. Use everything at your disposal to build up a quality relationship with God. Spend quality time in prayer. Spend quality time in worship. Spend quality time with other believers. Open up your heart. Be transparent. Be honest. Walk in integrity. And watch how close God can get to you. He'll get so close to you that you'll cry out the psalmist. I take refuge in the Lord God, my rock. Father, we thank you. We thank you, God, that we are under grace. And for all of eternity, we shall be under grace. We'll be overwhelmed by the grace of the Lamb of God who take away the sins of the world. God, I thank you for being just so kind and patient and merciful to us, Father God. I thank you, God, for all of us here, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name.